Crime and Punishment, Part 1, Chapter 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On an exceptionally hot evening, early in July, a young man came out of the garret in which he lodged in S place and walked slowly as though in hesitation toward Ski Bridge. He had successfully avoided meeting his landlady on the staircase. His garret was under the roof of a high five storied house and was more and was more like a cupboard than a room. The landlady who provided him with garret dinners and attendants lived on the floor below, and every time he went out he, he was obliged to pass her kitchen, the door of which invariably stood open, and each time he passed the young man had a sick, frightened feeling which made him scowl and feel ashamed. He was hopelessly in debt to his landlady, and was afraid of meeting her. This was not because he was cowardly and abject, quite the contrary, but for some time past he had been in overstrained, irritable condition, verging on hypochondria, he had be become so completely absorbed in himself and isolated from his fellows that he dreaded meeting not only his landlady but anyone at all. He was crushed by poverty, but the anxieties of his position had of late ceased to wait upon him. He had given up attending to matters of practical importance. He had lost all desire to do so. Nothing that any landlady could do had a real terror for him. But to be stopped on the stairs, to be forced to listen to her trivial, irrelevant gossip, to pestering demands for payment, threats, and complaints, and to rack his brains for excuses, to prevaricate, to lie no rather than that, he would creep down the stairs like a cat and slip out unseen. This evening, however, on coming out into the street, he became acutely aware of his fears. I want to attempt to think like that, and I'm frightened by these trifles, he thought, with an old smile. Yes, all is in a man's hands, and he lets it all slip from cowardice. That's an axiom. It would be interesting to know what it is men are most afraid of. Taking a new step? Uttering a new word is what they fear most. But I'm talking too much. It's because I'm chatter. 
that I do nothing. Or perhaps it is that when I chatter because I do nothing, I learned to chatter this last month, lying four days together in my den, thinking of the Jack the Giant Killer. Why am I going there now? Am I capable of that? Is that serious? It is not serious at all. It's simply a fantasy to amuse myself, a plaything. Yes, maybe it is a plaything. The heat in the street was terrible, and the airlessness, the bustle, and the plaster, scaffolding bricks and dust all about him, and that special Petersburg stench. So familiar to all who are unable to get out of town in summer, all walked painfully upon the young man's already over rough nerves. The insufferable stench from the parlor houses, which are particularly numerous in that part of the town, and the drunken man who he met continually, although it was a working. Day, completely the revolting misery of the picture. An expression of the profoundest disgust gleamed for a moment in a young man's refined face. He was, by the way, exceptionally handsome, above the average in height, slim, well built, with beautiful dark eyes. And dark brown hair. Soon he sank into the deep thought, or more accurately speaking, into a complete blackness of mind. He walked along, not observing what was about him, and not caring to observe it. From time to time, he would mutter something from the habit of talking to himself. To which he had just confessed. At these moments, he would become conscious that his ideas were sometimes in a tangle, that that he was very weak. For two days, he had scarcely tasted food. He was so badly dressed. That even a man accustomed to the chabiness would have been ashamed to be seen in the street in such rags. In that quarter of the town, however, scarcely a shortcoming in dress would have created surprise, owing to the proximity of the haymarket, the number of establishments of bad character. The preponderance of the trading and working-class population crowded in these streets and alleys in the heart of Petersburg. Types of various were to be seen in the streets that no figure, however queer, would have caused surprise. But there was such accumulated bitterness and contempt in the young man's heart. That, in spite of all fastidiousness of youth, he minded his rags least of all in the street. It was a different matter when he met the acquaintances, or 
with the former fellow student, whom indeed he disliked meeting at any time. And yet, when a drunken man who, for some unknown reason, was being taken somewhere in a huge wagon dragged by a heavy dray horse, suddenly shouted at him as he drove past. I wear German hatter, bowling at the top of his voice and pointing at him, the young man stopped suddenly and clutched tremulously at his hat. It was a tall, round hat from the Zimmermans, but completely worn out, rusty with age, all torn and bespattered brimless, and bent on one side in a most unseemly fashion. Not shame, however, but quite another feeling akin to terror had overtaken him. I knew it, he muttered in confusion. I thought so. That's the worst of all. Why a stupid thing like this? The most trivial detail might spoil the whole plan. Yes, my hat is too noticeable. It looks absurd. That makes it noticeable. With my rags I ought to wear a cap and a sort of old pancake. But not this grotesque thing. Nobody wears such a hat. It would be noticed a mile off, it would be remembered. What matters is that people would remember it, and that would give them a clue. For this business one should be as little conspicuous as possible. Trifles, trifles are what matter. Why, it's just such trifles, but always ruining everything. He had not far to go. He knew indeed how many steps it was from the gate of his lodging house. Exactly seven hundred and thirty. He had counted them once, when he had been lost in dreams. At the time he had put no faith and those dreams and was only tantalizing himself by their hideous but daring recklessness. Now, a month later, he had begun to look upon them differently, and in spite of monologues in which he did as his own impotence and indecision, he had involuntarily come to regard his hideous dream as an exploit to be attempted, although he still did not realize this himself. He was positively going now for a rehearsal of his project, and at every step his excitement grew more and more violent. With the sinking heart and a nervous tremor, he went up to a huge house which on one side looked onto the canal and on the other into the street. This house was led out into the tiny tenement and was inhabited by working people of all kinds, tailors, locksmiths, cooks, Germans of sorts, girls picking up the living as best they could, petty clerks, 
etc. There was a continual coming and going to the two gates and in the two courtyards of the house. Three or four doorkeepers were employed on the building. The young man was very glad to meet none of them and at once slipped into notice to the door on the right and up the staircase. It was a back staircase, dark and dark and narrow, but he was familiar with it already and knew his way, and he liked all the surroundings. In such darkness even the most inquisitive eyes were not to be dreaded. If I am so scared now, what would it be if it somehow came to pass? What I were really going to do? I could not help asking himself as he reached to the third story. There this progress was bared by some porters who were engaged in moving furniture out of the flat. He knew that the plant had been occupied by a German clerk in the civil service and his family. This German was moving often, and so the fourth floor on the staircase would be antenated except by the old woman. That's a good thing anyway, he thought to himself, as he rang the bell of the old woman's flat. The bell gave a faint tinkle, as though it were made of tin and not of copper. The little flats in such houses always have bells that drink like that. He had forgotten the note of that bell, and now its peculiar tinkle seemed to remind him of something and to bring it clearly before him. He started. His nerves were terribly overstrained by now. In a little while, the door was opened a tiny crack. The old woman eyed her visitor of evident distrust to the crack, and nothing could be seen but her little eyes glittering in the darkness. But seeing a number of people on the landing, she grew bolder and opened the door wide. The young man stepped into the dark entry, which was partitioned off from the tiny kitchen. The old woman stood facing him in silence and looking inquiringly at him. She was a diminutive, withered-up old woman of sixty, with sharp, malignant eyes and a sharp little nose. Her colorless, somewhat grizzled hair was thickly smeared with oil, and she wore no kerchief over it. Round her thin long neck, which looked like the hand's leg, was knotted some sort of the flannel rag, and in spite of the heat, there hung flapping on her shoulders, a mangy fur cape, yellow with age. The old woman coughed and groaned at every instant. The young man must have looked at her with a rather peculiar expression, 
for the gleam of mistrust came into her eyes again. Miss Karnik of the student, I came here a month ago. The young man made haste to murder. The old woman coughed and groaned at every instant. The young man must have looked at her with a rather peculiar expression, for a gleam of mistrust came into her eyes again. Raskolnikov, a student, I came here a month ago, the young man made a haste to murder, with a half-bow, remembering that he ought to be more polite. I remember, my good sir, I remember quite well your coming here, the old woman said distinctly, still keeping her inquiring eyes on his face. And here, I'm again on the same errand, Raskolnikov continued, a little disconcerned and surprised at the old woman's mistrust. Perhaps she is always like that, though. Only I did not notice it the other time. He thought with uneasy feeling. The old woman paused, as though hesitating, then stepped on one side, and pointing to the door of the room, she said, letting her visitor pass in front of her. Step in, my good sir. The little room into which the young man worked, with the yellow paper on the walls, geraniums, and muslin curtains in the windows, was brightly lighted up at the moment by the setting sun. So the sun will shine like this, too, flashed as it were, chance, flashed as it were by chance to Laskolnikov's mind, and with a rapid glance he scanned everything in the room trying as far as possible to notice and remember its arrangement. But there was nothing special in the room. The furniture, all very old, and of yellow wood, consisted of a sofa with a huge bent wooden back and an oval table, and in front of the sofa, a dressing table, with the looking-glass fixed on it between the windows, chairs along the walls, and two or three halfpenny prints in yellow frames representing German damsels, the birds in their hands, that was all. In the corner a light was burning before a small icon. Everything was very clean, the floor and the furniture were brightly polished. Everything shone. Lizaveta spoke thought the young man. There was not a speck of dust to be seen in the whole flat. It's in the house as spiteful all windows that one finds such a cleanliness. Raskolnikov thought again, and he still a curious glance at the cotton curtain over the door leading into the another tiny room in which stood the old woman's bed and chest of drawers and into which he never looked before. These two rooms made up the whole flat. What do you want, the old woman said severely, coming into the room, and as before standing in front of him, 
so as to look him straight in the face. I brought something to pawn here, and he drew out of his pocket an old-fashioned flat silver watch, on the back of which was engraved a globe. The chain was of steel, but the time is up for your last pledge. The month was up the day before yesterday. I bring you the interest for another month. Wait a little. But that's for me to do as I please, my good sir. To wait or to sell, you pledge at once. How much will you give me for the watch? Alana Ivanovna, you come with such trifles, my good sir. It's scarcely worth anything. I gave you two roubles last time for your ring, and one could buy it quite new at a jeweler's for a rouble and a half. Give me four roubles for it, I shall redeem it. It was my father's. I shall be getting some money soon, a rouble and a half in interest in advance, if you like. A rouble and a half, cried the young man. Please yourself, and the old woman handed him back the watch. The young man took it, and was so angry that he was on the point of going away, but checked himself at once, remembering that there was nowhere else he could go, and that he had another object also in coming, handed over, he said roughly. The old woman fumbled in her pocket for her keys and disappeared behind the curtain into the other room. The young man, left standing alone in the middle of the room, listened inquisitively, thinking. He could hear how unlocking the chest of drawers. It must be the top drawer, he reflected, so he carries the keys in a pocket on the right, all one bunch on a steel ring, and there is no key there, three times as big as all the others, with deep notches. That can't be the key of the chest of drawers. And there must be some other chest or strong box that's worth knowing. Strong boxes always have keys like that, but how degrading it all is. The old woman came back. Here, sir. As we say, ten copics the rouble a month. So I must take fifteen copics from the rouble and a half for the month in advance. But for the two rubles I lent you before, you own me now twenty kopecks on the same reckoning in advance. That makes thirty-five kopecks altogether. So I must give you a ruble and fifteen kopecks for the watch. He says, what? Only a ruble and fifteen kopecks now? Just so. The young man did not dispute it, and took the money. He looked at the old woman, and was in no hurry to get away, as though there was still something 
he wanted to say or to do, but he did not himself quite know what. I may bring you something else in a day or two, Aliana Ivanovna, a valuable thing, silver, a cigarette box, as soon as I get it back from a friend. He broke off in confusion. Well, we will talk about it then, sir. Goodbye. Are you always at home alone? Your sister is not here with you. He asked her as casually as possible as he went out in the passage. What business is she of yours, good sir? Oh, no particular, I simply ask. You are too quick. Good day, Elena Ivanovna. Raskolnikov went out in the complete confusion. This confusion became more and more intense. As he went down the stairs, he went stopped short two or three times, as though suddenly struck by some thought. When he was in the street, he cried out, Oh God, how loathsome it all is! And can I, can I possibly? No, it's nonsense. It's rubbish. He added resolutely, And how could such an atrocious thing came into my head? What filthy things my heart is capable of. Yes, filthy, above all, disgusting, loathsome, loathsome. And for all the whole month I've been, but no words, no exclamations could express his agitation. The feeling of intense repulsion which had begun to oppress him and torture his heart while he was on his way to the old woman had by now reached such a pitch and had taken such a definite form that he did not know what to do with himself to escape from his wretchedness. He walked along the pavement like a drunken man regardless of the passers-by, and jostling against them, and only came to his senses when he was in the next street. Looking round, he noticed that he was standing close to a tavern, which was entered by steps leading from the pavement to the basement. At that instant, two drunken men came out the door, and abusing and supporting one another, they mounted the steps. Without stopping to think, Raskolnikov went down the steps at once. Till that moment he had never been into the tavern, but now he felt giddy and was tormented by a burning thirst. He longed for a drink of cold beer and attributed his sudden weakness to the want of food. He sat down at a sticky little table in a dark and dirty corner, ordered some beer, and eagerly drank off the first glassful. At once he felt easier, and his thoughts became clear. All that's nonsense, he said hopefully and there is nothing in it all to worry about. It's simply physical derangement. Just a glass of beer, a piece of dry bread, 
and in one moment the brain is stronger, the mind is clearer, and the will is firm. Phew! How utterly it all is! But in spite of this scornful reflection, he was by now looking cheerful, as though he were suddenly set free from a terrible burden, and he gazed round in a friendly way at the people in the room. But even at that moment he had a dim foreboding that his happier frame of mind was also not normal. There were people at the time in the tavern. Besides the two drunken men he had met on the steps, a group consisting of about five men and a girl, the third concertina, had gone out at the same time. Their departure left the room quiet and rather empty. The person still in the tavern were a man who appeared to be an artisan, drunk, but not extremely so, sitting before a pot of beer, and his companion, a huge stout man with a great bird and a short full-skirted coat. He was very drunk and had dropped asleep on the bench, every now and then he began as though in his sleep cracking his fingers, with his arms wide apart, and with the upper part of his body bounding about on the bench, while he hummed some meaningless refrain, trying to recall some such lines as these. His wife a year he fondly loved, his wife a year he fondly loved. And suddenly waking up again, walking along the crowded row, he met the one he used to know. But no one shared his indictment. His silent companion looked with his positive hostility and mistrust at all these manifestations. There was another man in the room who looked somewhat like a retired government clerk. He was sitting apart, now and then sipping from his pot and looking round at the company. He too appeared to be in some agitation. The end of part one. Chapter 1